0: From the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 1, we begin reading in verse 57. We'll read from verse 57 to verse 80. Last Lord's Day, we, we remembered the angel Gabriel appearing to Zechariah and promising that he would have a son And that he would be the one to prepare the way for the Messiah. Today we will be reading the account of the birth of John the Baptist. And then the prophecy of Zechariah, the song of Zechariah, also called the Benedictus, from which we will have our sermon. So Luke 1, beginning in verse 57. Now Elizabeth's full time came, that she should be delivered, and she brought forth a son. And her neighbors and her cousins heard how the Lord had showed great mercy upon her, and they rejoiced with her. And it came to pass that on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they called him Zachariah after the name of his father. And his mother, mother answered and said, Not so, but he shall be called John. And they said unto her, There is none of thy kindred that is called by this name. And they made signs to his father how he would have him called. And he asked for a writing table. And wrote saying, his name is John, and they marveled all, and his mouth was opened immediately, and his tongue loosed, and he spake and praised God, and fear came on all that dwelt round about them. And all these sayings were noised abroad throughout all the hill country of Judea. And all they that heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What manner of child shall this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Ghost and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people. And hath raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And he spake by the mouth, as he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began, that we would be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham, that he would grant unto us that we, being delivered out of the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And thou, child, shall be called the prophet of the highest, for thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation unto His people by the remission of their sins, through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day from on high hath visited us, to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit and was in the deserts till the day of his showing unto Israel. We return our attention to Luke chapter 1. And in all that we have read and having the birth of John the Baptist before us, The day that he was being circumcised. Um, This is what the event is um, before us. Um, Zechariah was about to circumcise his eight day old baby. You'll remember that Zechariah has been in silence because he has been in discipline for nine months. And perhaps by now he was wondering when it would be fulfilled that he would have his voice back. The angel had said that when these things were to come to, he would be able to speak again. But it's been eight days and he continues in silence. And as they are about to name and circumcise the the baby, and the, the reason it was common knowledge to them to name the baby Zechariah is because this was the firstborn, and that was the practice that the firstborn son would have the father's name. But the mother already knew enough of what had happened inside the holy place, and certainly um, in these nine months. Zechariah seemed to have had the capacity to at least put down into words and writing so that the mother knew the baby's name was to be John. And when they asked the father, and because they made signs, it's implied in this that Zechariah had also lost his hearing. And they, in their minds, they're not really thinking he knows even what's going on and what they're talking about. But in their making signs, Zechariah asks for that tablet and writes down. And in in Greek, it would be, John is his name. The name John comes forth first. That's what they would have seen written on the tablet before he completed the sentence. John is his name. And the reason it astonished them is that they realized that Zechariah was attuned to the fact that they were about to name the child another, another name and he agreed with his wife that it should be John. But the astonishment came a few seconds later because as soon as he wrote down the name It says in verse 64, And his mouth was opened immediately, and his tongue loosed, and he spake and praised God. So no longer do they need signs to communicate with them, and no longer do they need a tablet to see Zechariah communicate back to them. They can hear it from his very lips. And the first thing he does is praise God. And the second thing he does is prophesy unto us. He he speaks to God and then God speaks through him to us. That's what it means. And prophesied, verse 67. When it says, and prophesied, that is literally meaning, and he began to speak the words that God has for us. And so he had his mouths open, he spoke unto God, he praised God, and then God spoke through him. See how important it was that the lips of this prophet would be open. There are so many beautiful things happening here. He is prophesying about a prophet. And he's prophesying what many prophets have prophesied would happen. The many prophets from old namely two, especially Isaiah and Malachi, had prophesied that there would be a preparer of the way, who is John the Baptist, the little baby that he has just circumcised. And and this little baby will be a prophet. So prophets of old have prophesied a very recent prophet, a prophet in the very arms of Zechariah. And Zechariah is a prophet who's remembering all of those prophecies and blessing his own Son, as this new prophet. All of these things are happening. And there are a lot of things happening even in the names of the characters. You'll remember that Zechariah means God remembers, and his wife's name, Elizabeth, means God is faithful. The name of his little boy is God is merciful. That's what John means. And of course, the sweetest name of all is still to come, it is still six months. Before his birth. But he's already in the world. In the womb of Mary. And his name Jesus. Means God saves. So the message of the gospel. Is really in the names of Zechariah, Elizabeth. John and Jesus. And it teaches us what God was doing. God was remembering his promises. He was faithful to bring it about. And in mercy. He sent His Savior to save sinners. All of this we we learn in the moment that the discipline of Zechariah ends. And we can even tie one thing together. It ends in the very moment where Zechariah acts in faith. It is to say then that when Gabriel said that his mouth would open in the fulfillment of all these things, the fulfillment of all these things was not just the birth of of John the Baptist, or else it would have been eight days ago that his voice would would come back, but his voice comes back the moment he names him John, which is an act of faith of what the angel said that before he had doubted. And now that he manifests his confession, see, he's confessing his faith when he names him John. And so the fulfillment of all these things are so, and he speaks. So Zechariah speaking, Zechariah's faith, so that he could speak was part of the fulfillment of all these things. And it's, and it's bringing to us already, beloved, and this is where the main application to this sermon is, to, to every single sermon from the Word of God, beloved. This, this is the pivotal thing that you and I must respond by faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. You will not be saved without faith. Your sins will not be forgiven if you do not believe. Faith is of the essence. His mouth opened the moment he trusted, or at least showed that trust. And the world saw it. And they heard it. And then he prophesied this beautiful prophecy. And we, we have in other um, years looked at this um, song of praise, the Benedictus. And we, we have seen different elements of it. We have seen the structure of this prophecy. We, we have followed it through. Um, Verse by verse, what I, what I hope to do this year, as we come back to this um, song of Zechariah, is see how the, the subject of it, it, it is all about salvation. And we find in it our first point, the source of salvation, where it comes from. There's an obvious thing there, but one not so obvious when we look at the source. And then we will look at salvation itself and what it is. He, he brings some very simple, beautiful summaries of what salvation is. And thirdly, we will also see something of the Savior. It's every precious part of Scripture that speak of who Christ is. is, is precious. It is monumental. And this passage contains one such expression of who Jesus is that is so powerful to hearts especially that hurt, to hearts that ache, and who long for the light because of the dark, because of the darkness. So let us look at this hymn of praise, this Benedictus, um, what What has been called by one an exuberant eruption of praise, a cascade of exultation. This is a prophecy. Um, The the class of prophecy that this is in is right in with Elizabeth's song and Mary's song and Simeon's song still to be coming and, and even the angelic song when Jesus is born. It is not like the prophecies of the Old Testament. Because see this is a prophecy looking back to all of those and saying those were fulfilled. What those prophecies said has happened. And beloved we we need to put ourselves into the monumental reality of what was happening. You, You have to put yourself into the sandals of the Israelite people. It's not hard to do so. This is where all your studies of the Old Testament... In your own homes and through Sunday school, come very precious at this time. Because do you realize the grandeur of this moment? After thousands of years, there's fulfillment. After Abraham's wanderings and Israel's first bondage, it was hundreds of years in Egypt. And then finally they, they arrived in the promised land. And then finally they had a king after God's own heart. And after many battles against their enemies. And then after the second bondage in Babylon. After the coming back and rebuilding the temple and the wall. And any one of those moments people living would say it, it's forever. And the promises are not being fulfilled. And then after all of that history there's still 400 years of silence not a single prophet who comes to say how soon the messiah might come or remind them something of the preparer of the way who would come no until Gabriel comes to 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 Zechariah and then to Mary and these things are happening beloved this is monumental thousands of years in waiting so let us let us see first the source of salvation where is salvation from and there are two things that we can say in terms of the source of salvation the first is the obvious thing it is of God and not of man there have been men who have achieved some element of salvation And there have been moments where, of course, it was God, but using men like Moses and Joshua and and Nehemiah to, to save, as it were, all of Jerusalem so that it would have walls. But look at verse 68. It says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He hath visited and redeemed His people. Um, um, this whole prophecy is is um... With bookends of God's visitation. Because on verse 78 towards the end. It says through the tender mercy of our God. Whereby the day spring from on high has visited us. We have God the Father visiting us. And we could say it is God the, the Son visiting us. and And this shows us where salvation is from. Our Savior came from heaven. So that salvation is from heaven. It is something that God does for His people, not something that we achieve toward God. Not us going to God, but God coming to us. Of course, if you've been raised in the church, that is not much of a news to you. You have had many such sermons that remind you of this. But you need to understand, you, you live surrounded by people and throughout all of history, the mindset is, I must save myself when you look at the architecture in the ancient world all those monuments those ziggurats and the pyramids and those buildings and the obelisks that that is the human heart crying for salvation and since their gods would not come to them they needed to go to their gods and that's how they thought they could hope to be saved and that's why there was this desire to build something greater and higher because the mindset was we need to reach unto the gods. We need to offer our sacrifices in the pinnacle of these monuments so that our gods will hear us and will receive us. And that passed on in a, in a sinful way in the, in the minds of God's people where they felt they needed to go to the high places. And even when they were worshiping Jehovah, that's why God didn't like the offerings that were made in the high places, even if they were to Him, because it was people thinking they needed to go to God. And see, the temple was a manifestation where God was saying, even though the temple was built in a high place and it had an altar, but it was God who commanded that there. It was God who put His priests there. It was God who instituted the sacrifices there. And God was showing showing with this, you're not being saved because you're coming to Me. You're being saved because I come to you. That is the one difference between Christianity and every single religion in the whole entire world. Ours is a religion of a God who came. The world's religion is of you trying to go to whoever God that may be who doesn't even exist. And when the heart tries to do that, it's like us trying to be God, trying to save ourselves. It is a pride issue. It comes out of ignorance. But there's really no true humility there. Humility is to kneel at the foot of the cross and welcome the God who came. And be lost in the wonder that you are saved by His grace. Even my faith is not my own. And even my repentance is not my own. The only thing I bring are my sins. That I leave at the foot of the cross. And with my empty hands I cling to the Savior who came to me. Salvation is of God, not of man. That's the first thing we can say in terms of source. But there's a second thing. And and, and it's it's not the most immediate that we think of. But we can realize it is through through a theological logic we can see that this is also the source of salvation. It's not a, a second source. But it's thinking this way. If God is where our salvation comes from, where does our salvation come from? From the heart of God. And when we read this prophecy towards the end, we read verse 77. To give knowledge of salvation unto His people by the remission of their sins. This is is what John the Baptist's ministry would be. He was going to teach the people that there would be salvation. It would be the remission of their sins. And then look at verse 78. Through. See, through means that this is where it comes from. This is where this salvation, this is where this remission of sin comes from. Through the tender mercy of our God. So, if you were to be asked, where does the salvation come from? You say, from God. Where from God does it come from? It comes from His tender mercy. Now, the word "mercy" alone" already means this this loving compassion, this um, this heart that is not looking at merit, it is not looking at who deserves it. It is not looking at who who is the most who, who will be the best child of mine who will be the best Christian? I will save those. Mercy means he looked at our sinfulness. He looked at our need. He looked at our, our, our absolute lack of any kind of merit and said, I will choose him anyway. That man, he is battling against my church. He is kicking against the pricks. He is persecuting me, but I will save him. And so Paul was saved by the tender mercies of God. It is our human flesh that would make us think, well, look how great Paul was, so God chose him in order to be that. When people speak that way, they're not wanting to give God the glory. They're wanting to take glory to themselves but it encourages us and it would even encourage Paul because if Paul were to be told that it would be his merit he's the one who said he was the chiefest of sinners he saw his heart and he realized he would never be chosen if it was based on who he was in and of himself so he became the greatest preacher of the sovereign grace of God as is Zechariah doing The tender mercy. So the mercy of God. But then he brings the word tender. That word is connecting an intense feeling of compassion and sympathy. The word mercy is the attribute. The word tender is like an adjective for the attribute. How is God's mercy? How is his compassion? How is his love towards sinners? It is tender. That means it is gentle. It is full of affection in the inner parts. That's who God is. He's a tender God. So, salvation comes from God, and it comes from the tender mercy of God. Now, let us look at this salvation. And let us see this tenderness. And the one of the most beautiful ways to apply this in practical ways would be to ask yourself, are you merciful? And is your mercy tender? See, beloved, we we know we're supposed to be merciful, but we're supposed to be tender in our mercy. And this is what the world needs. In order to see Christ in us. Because that is who Christ is. He is a tender merciful Savior. And let me begin to show the tender mercy of God. In his sacraments. Think beloved how tender this is whether you be a baby or you be an adult and you've never received the sign of the covenant and you come before the congregation you confess your sins you're there to confess Christ you're confessing you're a sinner even as we bring our babies we're confessing my child was born in sin he he needs to be born again he needs cleansing and in the tender mercy of God he's given us water To apply. And before the faces of all. We see water washing on a big body or a little body. And that person receives that cleansing. And God on high is saying. As certain as that water washes your body. I wash away your sins. Through the sacrifice of my son. Christ on the cross did not receive tenderness. But this is how a baby, this is how an adult receives the tenderness of the washing of their sins in a symbol, but portraying for real when this baby, when this child, when you come because you believe in Jesus. Do we have this understanding? We're believing in a Christ who died so cruelly on the cross. Our sins were on Him. There's nothing tender about that. Every tenderness of our sins were upon the Lord Jesus. And God's justice fell upon Him. There's never a tension between His justice and His mercy. It acts together. But if God would only just and never merciful... No one would be saved. And there is no such thing as only mercy and no justice. That would be unjust salvation. For God to forgive you. But sin never to go punished. A holy God could not do this. So in his holiness. His wrath falls upon his son. And his mercy is directed to every soul who believes. And tenderly. You were brought to the bosom of the church. And then think of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, where we're literally touching an emblem that is His poured forth blood, and the other is His body broken. And we eat it and we drink it. We are having a meal. Remembering the sacrifice of our Savior. He says, take, eat. But this is my body. That was broken for you. You see, he's communicating his salvation to us saying, I saved you through my death. But I want you to receive it as a meal because I feed you through it. This is the tender mercies of our God in the words think of the words of scripture where he calls sinners to himself think of how tender these words are look at Matthew eleven twenty eight. Jesus said to the people come unto me all ye that labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest And put these things again together. Jesus knows I'm going to be very untenderly cared for on the cross. And I will receive the wrath of the Father for that which makes you weary and heavy laden. But to you, sinner, I say, come and I will give you rest. Tenderness. Mercy. John 7, 37. um, In that last day. The day of the feast, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. Not come unto me and be judged because you are a sinner and you deserve to be told and to rebuked and to be lessened and to, and to stop sinning. No. If any man thirst, come unto me and drink the woman who was with her fifth husband he said to drink of him and he would make her whole Isaiah 55 1 look at the tender mercy in these words ho everyone that thirsteth come ye to the waters and he that hath no money come ye buy and eat yea come buy wine and milk without money and without price why then do they say buy if it's for free because it's not for free it's for free for you but it wasn't free for the Savior for you to have this milk and this honey and this wine Jesus had to suffer An eternity of suffering on the cross. Boys and girls, when we read in the Apostles' Creed, and He descended into hell. Don't allow the repetition of that phrase make you almost block that out of your mind. See, Jesus on the cross was experiencing hell. I never forget a sermon from a dear pastor, Pastor Gordon Taylor, who said that he believes when Jesus said, "I thirst that what that would have been like a cry out of hell because there on the cross he felt the fires burning around him and the suffering of what hell is, and there from the cross he said, I thirst, this is an agony of moment for me, and in his body he suffered hell and 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 Hell is a place where people thirst. Remember how the rich man who was there in that parable, who he pled for at least a drop of water coming from Lazarus' hands, if he could bring it. So all of that reality, beloved, but for you, tender mercy. There's tender mercies in the examples also of salvation in God's Word. Every salvation is an example of tender mercy, but you'll, you'll agree with me that the, the, the salvations that not a single person in this world could ever imagine, that this soul or that soul could be saved, when that, those are saved, you see how merciful God is. And one example that I bring is Manasseh. He was such an evil king. He did not only promote idolatry he was idolatrous the unthinkable sacrificing of his own baby was part of what he did but he cried unto the Lord and the Bible says and the Lord heard his cry you love it. See, we, we tend to think this is how we are. We're not tender and we're not merciful. We think however big certain sins are, oh, there's no more hope. No, not for this sin now. It can't possibly be. And Manasseh in many ways is, is the comfort to every person who's ever been involved in the sin of abortion. But Repents. Because Manasseh did something worse in terms of wickedness because it was a born child and he promoted it for other born children to be executed. And when he cried unto the Lord, the Lord in His tender mercy saved him, brought him out of the prison and he was even given some time to reform. To repent. And to show his repentance. And to cleanse the temple. And you can imagine how his heart was aching. If only he could undo what he had done. And if he could have one more day to do it. Then another example I could bring is Nebuchadnezzar. He committed the sin that in a sense could be... No human mind could think there would be any recourse of forgiveness. He destroyed the very temple of God. It was under Him that Israel was destroyed. That Judah was taken captive to Babylon. And in His paganness, He he committed so many atrocities... The Lord. You, you could say, yeah, but, but, but God made him become almost like an animal for seven years. You, you put those things together, beloved, and, and you have to conclude he was so tender. The kingdom even returned to him. No one ever murdered him. His mind came back to him after seven years. And you find in the very pages of scriptures what Nebuchadnezzar said. And he is exclaiming that he is the highest God. And who gives kingdoms unto men. And who removes them when he wants to. And brings them when he wants to. And he gives praise to almighty God. So much so that Daniel later is able to testify to the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. How God broke the heart and humbled Nebuchadnezzar. That was God's tender mercy. And I want to bring one more example. Because this example we we find someone who he would never dream of destroying the temple. Like Nebuchadnezzar did. But he was destroying temples. Because when Saul presided over the stoning of Stephen. Stephen was filled with the Spirit it says. Stephen was the temple of the Holy Spirit. And Saul approved of the people who were casting stone upon that man Stephen. And in a a biblical sense, you could say that that was a greater sin than destroying the temple made with hands. He was destroying Stephen, who was a bearer of the image of God and of the Spirit of God. And Saul couldn't care less, and he wanted him dead. And then he went and and, and, and caused havoc in the church, putting other people in prison and presiding over, over other people's death. And what did God do? When Jesus comes to him, do you you notice the tenderness? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? You are kicking against the pricks. And Saul says, What will you have me to do, Lord? What a tender conversion! What tender words. So we've seen the source of salvation. It is God. It is a tender mercy of God. But let me go to our second point, salvation. What is salvation? We'll begin by by looking at what it is. What is it specifically? And, And the reason this is important is because... Everyone's so confused about salvation. And throughout all the ages, people have been confused. And even God's people. The reason they didn't accept Jesus as Savior is because they were wanting a political Savior. They wanted a political salvation. And when we read what Zacharias says in verse 74, it could sound like he was a little confused about this too. But we can see where this where this is resolved. He says in verse 74, that He would grant unto us that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve Him without fear. Well, to be delivered out of the hands of our enemies. The people in those days were under Rome. Could He mean that all they need is salvation from Rome? No, Zechariah knows that this Savior is not going to come for a political salvation or an economical salvation. He's coming for a spiritual salvation. We know it's spiritual because um, in verse 75, we begin reading there and we see that Zechariah understood this. He said, in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life that that we may serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness and then he looks at his little child and says and thou child shall be called the prophet of the highest for thou shalt go before the face of the lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation So, so what will be this salvation that this john your baby will speak of Unto his people by the remission of their sins. That's what salvation is. In a summary. In this prophecy. Salvation is the forgiveness of sins. To have your sins cleansed. Pardoned. Remember no longer. By God. Remember, we've seen a while back a sermon on all the figures and how many figures there are, more than 16 figures of forgiveness. Pictures of how God forgives us. As if one picture is not enough, God gives us another one. That He erases sin. That He blots out sin. That He throws sin away as far as the east is to the west. That He throws sin in the deepest of the seas. That He covers sins. That He turns away from sin and sees it no longer. That sin is like a debt. And He he cancels that debt. He says, you don't have that debt anymore. My son paid for it on the cross. That He takes sin and removes it. Sends it away. That's what salvation is. It is spiritual. It is sin being removed. And so if sin is removed, you are made right with the God whom you were wrong with. You are made right with a God whom you were in rebellion against. You are made right with a God who you were in enmity against. We were enemies of God, but when He forgives our sins, He's showing that He's no longer an enemy, and He makes us to be at peace with Him. That is salvation. Now, I want to go to our third point and look at the Savior. Now, we've said, of course, to some degrees, some things about the Savior, but there's a few more to say. In in the very metaphor that is used, if we go back to verse 77, what will be the men be saved? That, that's why he baptized. That's why he went to the waters. That was a big picture of the forgiveness of sins. And then in verse 78, he says, through the tender mercy of our gods, that's where it comes from. That's where salvation comes from. Be saved. That, that's why he baptized. That's why he went to the waters. That was a big picture of the forgiveness of sins and then in verse 78 he says through the tender mercy of our gods that's where it comes from that's where salvation comes from whereby the day from on high has visited us this is the Savior so really in our third point we see a third source of our salvation they're all interconnected where does your salvation come from? from God where? from his heart of tender mercies how how does that happen? How this see it's still a source of salvation. How how is this salvation made possible? Well, the day spring from on high visited us. Zechariah is using here a double metaphor in the word dayspring. not just yeah dayspring itself, and then also from on high has visited us completes completes the figure the, the word dayspring it it can simply means mean the east or the rising this is why it can be translated the dawn Jesus is, is not necessarily being called the sun itself as it is rising, but just the rising itself. You know how you look at the horizon and it is, it, it is almost the time for the sun to arise and, and that whole side of the horizon, especially, of course, that little spot where the sun is about to appear, that's the day spring, that's the dawn. And, and it's already speaking of, of a coming, right? A, a, a dawn is always coming it is not going that's a sunset the dawn is always coming it's it's always arising and then he says that he has visited us so it's a metaphor of the brightness and it's a metaphor of the coming the coming of brightness the coming of day the coming of hope The coming of comfort. The coming of forgiveness. The coming of salvation. This is who Jesus is. He is like the sunrise. We've been in the night of unbelief. We've been in the night of sin and rebellion. We've been in the night of of rejection of God, when you look to Jesus and believe in Him, He's a sunrise into that darkness. And it's such a beautiful emblem of conversion. Here we were in the night... The, another figure is the bondage of Egypt, or we are in captivity in Babylon. We, we are in sin. We are in paganism. We, we are worshiping false gods. We are not serving God. Think of those sermons of, in, in, in Acts. We are, we are rejecting Jesus. We are rejecting the gospel. We are rejecting the messengers of the gospel. That, that's the darkness, that's the night. But then when you look to Jesus, there is morning, there is sunrise. There is hope. And that light is casting a brightness on all the darkness. And then you get to an hour like now. And it is all all light. And no darkness. And that is conversion. That is who Jesus is. He is the sun arising in your heart. And it's that very dayspring that is connected to to, to the tender mercy of our God. God wanted to save the world. He sent one baby to be the precursor. And then He sent a second baby to be the Savior. You, You can't get more tenderness... Then two babies coming into the world. One baby who begins his ministry when he's six months old in the womb of his mom. Because when Mary comes and greets Elizabeth, the baby in Elizabeth's womb leaps for joy because he's filled with the Holy Spirit. We have in John the Baptist an unborn baby ministering to the world. It can't be more tender than that. And then the Savior arrives and He's a baby coming forth from the womb of Mary. And He's laid upon a manger. And angels come to announce to the shepherds. And and they come to visit the baby that was born. The Savior of the world. It can't be more tender than that. But the contrasts are always there. And at the end of His life, they nail Him to a tree. I can truly say, I'm not exaggerating, in these things it's so encouraging to know we're, we're not super anything. From the most tender of moments, God made flesh to the cruelest of moments, Christ crucified. The wrath divine falling upon Him. And in His tenderness, He says, Come, drink of Me if you're thirsty. Come to Me if you're leery and weary. And I will give you rest. When people hear the Gospel, they're only not saved if they reject the invitation of such a tender Savior. And let me end with the illustration that is in the text in verse 79 in essence it's a little illustration he ends saying to give light so here's a sun that arises and see it gives light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. So it speaks of the sun rising. The picture of the day spring is in our minds, but it speaks of these people in the plural because it says um, to guide our feet in the way of peace. It's, it's like there are these people who are travelers, and, and the night has come upon them. And, and as you know, in many of the places in those days in the Middle East, you do not travel at night. There are dangers. At night, there are thieves, there are wild animals, there are precipices, and, and you have to stay still. The night makes you paralyzed, as it were, and you have to wait. There's fear, there's mystery, you're scared. If you have little babies and you're traveling, can you imagine the heartbeat of a mother when they hear the, the hissing, maybe, of a serpent in the wilderness? So, this is where these people are. They're in the shadow of death. This is what this world is, beloved. It it is like a valley of tears. It is full of darkness. It is full of sadness. But then Christ came. And He is the one who gives light to them who sit in darkness. And see, they're able now to start their trek. And with their feet they go on the way of peace so that every single Christian in this world, even as we are met with challenges and sad things and events that break our hearts, that remind us of the darkness of this world, we have the light of the day spring in our hearts. And this is why it matters as believers comfort one another as we point each one to this merciful Savior, to this day spring who has come from on high and visited us. It brings light and it brings warmth and it brings comfort to the hearts of God's people. And we continue in this pilgrimage of this world in the way of peace. We're not paralyzed because we're not in darkness but those who are unsaved those who are lost are in darkness and beloved if if you are one such traveler in this world do not use the lights of this world the world tries to give lights, it gives self helps, it gives philosophical kinds of lights it looks at false religion as if it were lights, that only makes it darker Look to the dayspring who has visited us. Trust in Jesus. Trust in His sacrifice for sinners. And He will arise in your own heart and help your own feet into the way of peace. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious and glorious God, We thank Thee, Lord, that Thou art a God who saves sinners. We thank Thee, Lord, that salvation is of Thee. For if it weren't of Thee, not a single one of us would attain it. Because it's not to be attained. It is impossible because of our sins, because of our transgressions, our rebellion. In our heart, Lord, we understand we do not seek after God. There is none who does good. All we, like sheep, have scattered. But, Lord, Thou hast come. Thou hast visited us. Thou, Lord Jesus, the Good Shepherd, gave Thy life for the sheep. And we pray that through thy gospel, thou would shepherd us, Lord, to be together as thy people and to encourage one another as thy people and to evangelize the lost, Lord, that they may be thy people. We pray, Lord, that in this Christmas season as hearts are at least to some degree open to hear the message of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ that Thou, Lord, would use the means that are used, the hymns that are sung, the messages that are given to save souls that the day spring from on high, Lord, would visit the very souls of those who are lost and visit also, Lord, the very souls of those who hurt and who believe in Thee already, but that they may only trust in Thee even more. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.